before I left my last address on Romans in chapter 6. We had made our way down through verses 15 through 23, but I said that we were going to have to come back to verse 17 because encapsulated in this one verse in verse 17 is a monstrous amount of information. Uh, and I mean that in a good way. I probably shouldn't use them. I should use a, a, a massive amount of, in, of, of information uh, that is both uh, doctrinal and practical. So uh, we're going to be looking at continuing on in Romans 6 through 8, being the, uh, uh, the locus classicus of the doctrine of sanctification. But specifically today, we're going to be thinking about how we, how we are delivered to a new master. First off, no human being is a free agent in the sense that they, they can live life completely neutral and free. You are going to serve somebody. It's just a fact. I was astonished to learn that for those who remember Bob Dylan, okay, singer back in the day, a little bit before me, I think, but uh, he had a song that was something titled, Everybody Has Got to Serve Somebody. And, and it actually was pretty good lyrics, but he was right. Everybody has to serve somebody. And the problem that we have today is that we have to remember that as human beings, we're children of Adam first. We come into this world with a, with a sin nature that is set. Unlike Adam, we're not able not to sin. We're only able to sin in the natural realm of things. It's only until we meet Christ that we become unable not to sin. And so that's what we call the sanctification portion of our Christian life. But before Christ, we are bound in sin. We are enslaved to it. It's like being born with a terminal illness. It manifests early in manipulation and in selfish fits and in desires of what I want. I mean, even to the smallest of ages. How are we delivered? We are born and bound to this master. We're, we're born, if you will, into indentured servitude. Enslaved to sin. And it is terminal. Now I know that we all know people who have uh, terminal illnesses. Whether it be cancer, it could be a heart issue, it could be a genetic problem, it could be whatever. And we, we think, oh, you know, those folks. And, and, and God is the one who finally decides how long that process should lay out. But I'll have you all know that every single one of us are born with a terminal disease of the soul. Only Christ can set us free from it. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. The problem. And I'm looking at this from a specific to the church. You, you, you're going to hear this every time that I preach because it's so obvious now. The problem that we have in American Christianity and in Western, Western nations, Western Christianity, is a failure of 21st century Western Christians to understand and apply 
the doctrine of sanctification to personal holiness in their everyday lives. The result is a weak and lethargic church with no power, no passion, and an ever-increasing conformity to the world around them. We're seeing that every day. An ever-increasing conformity to the world around them. Churches are folding up in droves to the conformity around them. It's even happened to the Southern Baptist Convention of Churches. It is a mess right now. And it's probably going to end in a major split next year. Over, as it has been, the authority of Scripture as it relates to men's roles, women's roles, and the creation ordinance of sexual differences. Yeah, always comes down to that. In honor of God and His Word, let's stand and as we're going to read through these, this, this short two verses. There's just two, and then I'm going to pray for a miracle to get through this. <clears throat> now here's, here's this, grab it in, okay? We're reading the Word of God to us. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, just talked about it, Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for the great assistance of the Holy Spirit to open the heart of our understanding so that we might not only learn what this means, but that we may live it in our life. God, it is important for us to see what you've done for us and the implications that it has for the way we live. God, we can already see the implications of what happens when a people forget what Jesus has done. God, help us in this hour. God, revive us again. Use your word as you've always done in the past and fill us up and heal us so that we might live. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to move rapidly here. The fallacy of the autonomous self. How many have heard of the autonomous self? Maybe if you've been in philosophy class, you've probably heard of the autonomous self. And I I might read all of these slides. I may not. They're more for me than they are for you. I printed them off too because I wasn't sure which way to go. But in simplest sense, autonomy is about a person's ability to act on his or her own values and interests. So far, so good. Taken from the ancient Greek, the word means self-legislation or self-governance. Modern political thought and bioethics often stress that individual autonomy should be promoted and respected. The problem is... Okay, is whose ethics, okay, and whose values are you going to choose? Because the autonomous self now has even escaped the confines of the academy and out of the, 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 the scholastic forms of philosophy and it's transcended into a degradation of logic. Because now autonomous self is saying if the, the people should have a right 
to be homeless if they want to be and take drugs if they want to, and we should supply them with it because that's what they choose. The people should be able to abort their children at nine weeks or whatever it is or however many t- much time it is if they want to. They should be able to do whatever they want because they have autonomous self. The people should be able to marry a horse if they want to. The people should be able... Where does it stop? See, that's your issue is, is you get into where does it stop once you go down that road. So the question then is, whose values does the autonomous self align with? What ethics is there really in an autonomous self? And I would say this, as the Bible says, when you have a fallen human nature, you don't have autonomy. You have slavery. And that's what the Bible says you have. You are bound in sin. You can do good, yes. You can be philanthropist. What? You can do that. Okay? You can do it. But your motives, your, your, your actions down deep apart from Christ is for you. The way you think, the way you perceive the world, the way you view life is a reflection of not only of what you've been around, but at the base of it. It's built on that foundation of a fallen, autonomous self. And the Bible says, as we just read, though you were slaves of sin, it means it. They go on to say that everybody's view should be respected. Except for the views that stand against it. So really it's a war of truth. Who's who's the authority to say what's right? Even in our time, the hypocrisy of it all. Murder. Everyone is happy for a murderer to be convicted of murder. But the question comes... How does that align then with the doctrine of the autonomous self? If they feel that it's right to murder. And if their right should be respected. Then why are they wrong? Someone's going to blow up. (laughs) So we ask this question. The world has to deal with this. Where does the idea of that murder is wrong where does it come from why is it wrong to take a life when that life didn't want to be taken who says they they have a hard time with this that's why lawlessness is then the eventuality of all things go and then what do you have complete anarchy I see sometimes young people walk around with a tattoo of an, an anarchy symbol on their arm, and I, and I often want to ask, because, I mean, you have it. There's like a billboard. Do you really want total anarchy? Do you really know what that means? 
That means that since you work in a drive-thru and someone's not happy with their meal, they can shoot you between the eyes and it's okay with your theory. Because there's no law. Well, that's not right. Who says? Sin enslaves the capacity of the natural man to think. To think logically. That's why the problem of our nation is not a political one. It's a spiritual one. Politics will not fix it. Look, look with me in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. You, you don't have to flip there. I'm going to flip there and I've got a rush. Genesis chapter 8. After Noah had built an altar to the Lord, it says in verse 20 and 21, and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. And it says in verse 21 of Genesis 8. This is really insightful. The Lord said in his, then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. From his youth. The imagination, the, or, or your Bible might say the intent. Now there's another passage in Ephesians, if you'll turn all the way to the right, if you want to, Try to keep up with that. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So a man's imagination is on evil from his youth. His intention, his intent. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Which presupposes that you were dead, right? In which you once walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the, what does it say? The mind. The imaginations of man are bent on evil. What I'm thinking, how I think, how I view the world. And then over here it says... uh, the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, as it says, children of wrath, just as others. We who know Christ were like that. But God, and I like this part, uh, but God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So we have this issue of being made alive. Now, we're breathing I'm alive. My body is alive. I cannot know Christ and I can be alive. Physically, I can be alive. But I'm not alive inside unless I know Christ. My heart is tainted by sin. It's saturated with it. It knows evil. Can it do good? Well, sure it can for its own purposes and reasons and motives. But it's not until I know Christ that I can live, that I'm really alive, that I can see That God made everything in it and me. And that His love for me is so great and so profound that there's no low that I can go that His grace is not greater still. So, I understand that I no longer want my autonomous self. I like what the 1689 uh, London Baptist has to say on this. 
Humanity, by falling into a state of sin, has completely lost all ability to choose any spiritual good that accompanies salvation. They've lost it. Thus, people in their natural state are absolutely opposed to spiritual good and dead in sin so that they cannot convert themselves by their own strength or prepare themselves even for conversion. You're dead. Get this. We live in a time with all of our technological advancements and all of the things that that gifted people have created in the form of art and beauty and painting. The landscape and canvas of creation all around us. We've been to space and we see and understand and seen pictures of stars being, well, they're falling apart or they're being born. All the gases and all the pictures and all the beauty. We see all that. And do you know what the common, it just seems like humanity now is concerned about really Right now, at least in our nation and in Western nations, because that's what I'm referring to here, it's really referred to only about two things. It's concerned with abortion and homosexuality. That seems to be it. With all of that, that is the hill to die on. Does, that sounds like a decaying, rotten, dead being to me. We're sinners by nature. Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. And there is none who does good. No, not one. So please don't ever tell me if you you don't want a long conversation that I have the kingdom within. I was told this last week by a lady who's been to India and sat under the pantheon of gods and gurus and says she has the kingdom within. But when you start talking Jesus and you want to talk about metaphysical now, I'll tell you who can give you lessons in the metaphysical. Jesus. I don't know anybody else who ever defied the laws of the natural law Walked on water, raised the dead, spoke to a tree and it died. Took five loaves and two fish and and, and fed over 15,000 people, probably more. Then, if that wasn't enough, was killed on a cross. Was dead in a tomb for three days and then he came back to life. Now, if I'm going to go to the authority on the metaphysical, I'm going to go to Jesus. Because Jesus isn't about death. He's about life. The kingdom within. I see what these people want when they talk about the kingdom within. It's a kingdom of darkness and perversion. Sodomy and murder. And that's just starting. But Jesus, purity and light and life. When you come to Christ as a sinner and a slave of sin, He frees you. I love reading when uh, uh, they were, uh, uh, see, hmm. gosh, I hate when that happens. Peter and John maybe were committed to the inner confines of the prison. 
They were preaching there. I think it was after Antioch. And the jailer put them into the deepest parts. And suddenly at night when they were singing and praying, the chains just fell off. Everybody's did. They just fell off. God is the king over all. Ecclesiastes 7.20, For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. So, please, do not engage in the concept that somehow you are innately good. Only because of Christ do you or can you have life and do good, true good, true goodness. How does this happen? So this is where we get into some meat. If you will, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. This has got to be the fastest hour of the whole week. Ezekiel chapter 36. Verses 26 and 27. How does someone who is chained in sin. Imagine chains, big ones. Cuffs of iron around your wrist and around your ankles. And let's even put one around your neck and around your waist. And you're bolted to the wall. What are you going to do? You need set free. God comes in and, and one of the first places we see the beauty of this is in Ezekiel chapter 36. This is actually part of what we call the new covenant. Okay, the, 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 the covenant of redemption. And he says, I will give you, look what, look in verse 26. He's, God says, I will give you a new heart. Do you give you a new heart from your kingdom within? No, you got nothing. God says, I will give you a new heart. What is it that's rotten in you and to begin with to make you a slave of sin? A rotten soul. We call it, we use heart as a picture. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will put a new spirit within you. You can't make one up. You can't conjure it up. And then he says, I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Who does that? God does that too. He does that. And then he says, I will put my spirit within you. And I love this word. It just drives people crazy that hate the sovereignty of God. But it says, and cause you (laughs) to walk in my statutes. I wish somebody would have stood up and shouted right there. Because he says, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cause you to do that. You get it? You're simply a passive recipient in the greatness of God in redemption. You're dead laying there oozing yuck. And he comes along and he gazes upon your soul with grace and mercy. And he puts a new soul, a new spirit within you. He takes out your heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh. He puts His Spirit within you and He causes you to walk in His statutes. 
and you will, I love this, and you will keep my judgments and do them. But then it says, then you will dwell, I will deliver you, I will multiply you, and you will remember me. I don't know how you can have the Christian faith any other way. I can't be trusted to do anything right in me. But God, but God can do it all. And when I say you need to be set free from sin, when I say you're a slave bound by sin, only Jesus can do it. Which is why we have this last big fat text out of the, uh, what we call effectual calling. Effectual calling. This is how this this happens. This Ezekiel is how this happens. In God's appointed and acceptable time, he is pleased to call effectually. That means he makes it effective. We just saw it. He will cause you to walk. By his word and by his spirit, those he has predestined to life, he calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Christ. You're just laying there, rotting. And he says, you. And I don't care how rotten you are. I don't care. You, you can go back generations in whatever cult you want. I don't care about your heritage. I don't care how violent or vile. You're no match for God. And he grabs you. And he says, live. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone, gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by his mighty power turns them to good and effectually draws them to Jesus. Yet he does all this in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by his grace. Before we're not, but he makes it so that you can be and you are. Imagine God. Reaching down where you are in your deadness. And just as in Genesis 1 when he said, let there be light. And there was light. And then the creation says, well, I didn't know we were in the dark. (laughs) I can see it now. And that's what happens when regeneration happens. You see. You see it. How do you see it? He makes you see it. Ching! The chains are coming off. The only thing is, you didn't pull it away. God did. I understand. Ching! And God's breaking you away from your sin. And, and I want God. Ching! And you're coming. And you're free because you're His. I love this next statement. This effectual call flows from God's free and special grace alone. Not from anything at all foreseen in those called. Paul. Paul often talked about his testimony, didn't he? And he said, I, I was the least of the apostles. I was a, a persecutor of the church. I, I had all of this stuff and I had so much hatred. And he did. I mean, he was killing them. And it was kind of slow for them to accept Paul, wasn't it? At first. But how else can you look at the apostle Paul's testimony and not see Ezekiel 36? He knocked him off his horse. 
And all he could say is, who are you, Lord? That's the one, <laughs> okay? And, and, and that's where you come to when you are a, a sinner being regenerated by the power and presence and grace of God. That slavery is being broken and that we see that whole thing transitioned in Paul's life. And look what God did with him. Look what God did with that man. Although one of my favorite lines about Paul is when Jesus is talking to Ananias, trying to give him some courage to go talk to the one who's persecuting the church. He goes, oh, it's okay. I'm going to show him all the things he have to suffer for my name's sake. But boy, he did. And he wore it as, a, as an offering to God. How... How, 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 do you, how do you have people? We have people like that today. But how do you have people that are so wicked that then just in a moment, God renews them? Because that's effectual calling. So then the question is, how, how, how are we conveyed out of the kingdom of darkness into the son of his love? By effectual calling. Can I say a word here? Just uh, as we get into our text, look at this. 17b. Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Oh, this is what we mean now. Doctrine. Doctrine. The body, I've been trying to think of a way to explain this, and even my wheels are falling off here, but I'm going to say this. (sighs) Doctrine to the Christian, to the church, is like the skeleton of our body. If there were no skeleton in me, no bones, do you know how funny I would look? All of us would just be blobs, just little flesh sacks of fluid and muscle, just kind of like a dumpling or something, okay? But it's the, the framework inside of us. I, I have a skeleton. I, I have a spine that holds up my... It, 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 you know, well, you get the idea. Okay? The reason my hand has strength to pull is because there's rigidity in my frame, in my bones, in my fingers, in my arms, which is te- connected to all of my other... my framework. The doctrine is the framework from which the Christian derives truth of what is right about God. And it says you obeyed that from the heart. The word form, by the way, is the word typos. We get typo from that, but typos. But it's a representative form or pattern that we're called to. And, and this is, notice he says, this is what you were delivered to, that form of teaching. Okay, because it says back here, you were obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. I love that he says that because the word for doctrine is didache in the Greek. And, and, and this is what we just simply call teaching. You, you obeyed from the heart. Now, how did you get that heart? Remember Ezekiel 36? God gave it to you. He did it. He made you alive. And He's causing you to walk in the statutes and the commandments and the ordinances. He's doing it. But it says you obeyed from the heart. That form, that type. Is it specific? 
Yeah, it's specific. What's it specific to? To God. That's what it's specific to. You want to know, I've, t- I've said this a million times, do you want to know why the world hates the Christians so bad? Is because we're a people of the book. They, they hate that. Because they'll say something, we'll go, nope, not in there. Okay. And they'll say, no, it's in there. So we take it, we scrape the page. Not in there. They, they can't stand the exclusivity of the authority of God. So they fight against it. And now, and, and, and JT talked a little bit, that, little bit about this last Sunday. I'm not going too much except to say this. This is exactly why we're having conversations about how men want to be women and women want to be men. Or my favorite, non-binary You get the idea. This is an attack against the authority of what God has created. And they became foolish in their minds. God gave them over to a debased mind. And it's not just in those issues. Those are just the the visible, most shocking ones. But what about the basic things of respect and courtesy and humility? What about honesty and integrity? What about all of those things? Commitment and covenant. What about those things? What about value? What about truth? So, because of the effectual calling, we the sinner are made willing to obey in sincerity the form of doctrine. And that is in contrast to what... Now, if you go back to Rome and you talked about, if you understand who Paul was talking to, he talked to, to a lot of he was talking to a lot of Christians who had a, a lot of Jewish connection, a lot of understanding of the Jewish faith, the law that they had to live under, that form of doctrine which was able to save their soul is the law of Christ, the law of faith, the new covenant of grace, all in who Christ is, that form right there. And and this last part that we get into is where it says the doctrine that you were delivered to. And and, and you can't miss that, and, and I don't want you to miss it. If you'll look, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now, that doesn't mean... Because if you read it fast, you'll think, yeah, okay, I was delivered from sin. No, 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 no. You were literally conveyed from the kingdom of the darkness of this world. Satan. Okay. And you were, because of Christ, you've now been given a new master. So you were taken out of that prison of death. And now you've been placed under the gracious keeping of your new master, Jesus. So when it says, and I like how this, this, this man in Woost, uh, in, it's in the Woost uh, literal translation, but God bethink that though you were slaves of the evil nature, but you obeyed out of the heart as a source, a type of teaching into which you were handed over. So you've been handed over from custody of that prison 
to this new gracious keeping of God. That's what it means. You've been delivered to that by that form of doctrine. You are held by that form of doctrine. So if we take the Bible just as an illustration and we cast it out of the church, what will we have left? That's right. Mush. We, that's dumplings. Okay. It's lots of spiritual dumplings. Okay. Because everything that we believe, everything that we have, the complete authority with which we teach, that with which we view God, that with which we view the world, that with which we engage the world, the values, our love, our motives, everything is built upon the framework of the doctrine of God. If you take it away, you are left with secular humanism. Perversions and darkness and death. Ultimately, you're, you're left with death. Okay? The last verse that I want to get to, and I'll just quit with the computer now. In verse 18, it says, In having been set free, free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So do you understand? You were set free from there. You've been handed over. Now you've been made a slave of righteousness. So was I a slave before Christ? Yes. Am I a slave after Christ? Oh yeah. Totally different deal though, man. I'm a slave of righteousness now. I live for Him. I have a king. I always thought it would be cool to be in a country that had a a good king. Say, hey, that's my king on the wall. (laughs) But I actually do. We have a king. We have the king. And that's why we don't bow the knee to Baals. That's why we don't uh, uh, concede truth. Because we have a king. What is it when you betray your king? What's it called? It is. Every time I choose to sin in the freedom of my will that's been released in Christ. Because that'll get in you. Paul prays a lot about that problem. You know, I want to do this, but I don't. When I do, I commit treason. But I have a gracious Savior who says, come before the throne of grace to find grace in your time of need. I have a mediator that stands there for me because I have been made a slave of righteousness. I want to read something to you to sum this up then. I was running on the road. I love running in the summer. And I like to listen to sermons as I go. Richard Owen Roberts, uh, because he is a man who understands what biblical revival is about. He understands it. And he had a message over the presence of God. Specifically, the manifest presence of God. And as I've said before, there, there are three types of the presence of God that we as a church should understand. First is the essential presence of God. He's everywhere. There's, never, there's not a place where He's not. We get that. He is essentially everywhere. Two is the cultivated presence of God. That's what this is about right now. This is about us tending to the weeds in our life as Christians. This is about those of you who are here who don't know Christ saying, my whole life is a weed and you need Christ to pull it up and give you a new garden bed, new dirt, new everything because yours is corrupt. You're a slave, he'll set you free. Then there's this third one, the manifest presence of God. Now, this is the big one. 
Think of the manifest presence of God as if there was a high jetliner flying over our church right now, and we saw it, and we heard the... And then it got so loud until finally that sucker just crashed through the entire building. It is manifestly here. Oh, yeah. It and the fire and the fuel and everything else is here. I mean, it's going to leave a mark, right? I mean, it wiped us off the, <laughs> right, wiped us off the map. It was manifestly present. Now, imagine God coming down in His mercy among His people and His love and His presence in a manifest way that causes us, that causes us, as in salvation, but in sanctification, causes us to become so sensitive to His presence and His nearness. That's all we want. We want nothing else. And whatever sin we have, we want to get it fixed as quickly as possible. And we can't wait to make restitution. And we can't wait to go and tell somebody about Jesus. And there's a power that comes. That's the manifest presence. But Richard writes this. And I'll close. And he's speaking about the cultivated presence of God here. Why it's lacking. He says. When there is a lack of holiness. In the church. And among God's people. There is evidence that God is not present in a manifest way. You would be hard-pressed to prove any real difference between the rate of immorality among professed believers and unbelievers. You think that's a true statement? The divorce rate in the evangelical church is simply a phenomenon. There is overwhelming evidence that God is not present in a manifest way. And that evidence is in the immorality and in the various forms of manifestations of sin that are all around us and within us. When there is no visible or manifest presence of law and order and there is increased iniquity. Did you get that part? Where there is a felt sense of God in society, evil is arrested. But we have the other right now, don't we? It's everywhere. When there is no manifest presence of God in society, there is a tremendous increase in wickedness and in openness in wickedness. When we cease to walk in God's ordinances and statutes, He ceases to be with us. That's a sad testimony for the church. And the only way we can fix it, the only thing we can really do is seek to cultivate the presence of God in our life by submitting ourselves to His Word every day. Reading it. Praying that God would give us eyes to see. And seeking and asking Him to sanctify us wholly. So that we become more sensitive to what He wants and less to what we want. That'll change things. I'm going to ask JT to come. As you're thinking about what to do with this, I guess I want to say, go back to the beginning and say, if you don't know Christ, you're a slave to sin. You're, you're dead. But, if you've been under the hearing of the Word of God, and He has touched your heart, you thank Him for it. And then you cry out for mercy and say, God save me, for it is God's, God commends all men everywhere to repent. And He's commanding you to do that today. To come to Him as a living stone and say, here's my dirt, my filth. I'm seeing it for the first time. Lord, take it from me. Save me. Fill me up with Your Spirit. Take mine out. 
and let me be your slave. I want a new master. Deliver me to your soul righteousness of kingdom. Lord, make me new. And Christian, if you're not as sensitive as you need to be to the things of the Spirit of God, how many weeds are growing in your box? Get to pulling. As JT plays, as God leads, you come.